Welcome to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Krause. It's a new season with some new theme music by PC3, and the first new episode of this third season, we have an interview for you with Dr. Jillian Buriak, Professor of Chemistry at the University of Alberta and Canada Research Chair of Nanomaterials and Energy. Dr. Buriak came to the University of Minnesota last spring to present the Covestro Lecture in Sustainability, which is hosted by the Center for Sustainable Polymers, not to be confused with the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which produces this podcast, but we are both, similarly, Centers for Chemical innovation that are funded by the National Science Foundation. And Dr. Buriak kindly took some time out of her schedule to talk with us for the podcast about her work with sustainable nanomaterials and solar energy and her life as a scientist. So without further ado, here is our interview with Dr. Jillian Buriak. Thank you so much for joining us for the Sustainable Nano Podcast. Thanks for <laughs> having me. Yeah. Do you want to introduce yourself briefly? My name is Jillian Buriak. I'm a chemist from the University of Alberta. Great. How did you get interested in science? How did you become a professor at the University of Alberta? Well, I initially started, uh, I did my undergraduate degree at Harvard where I was a math major for two years. But after two years, I was thinking, what am I going to do with this math? And so you had to branch at that point into applied math or theory. Mm -hmm. And maybe the people around me didn't do a good job of selling math because they said, well, applied math, you could go and work for an insurance company and do calculations of, of probabilities and thinking, oh, great. And the theory, the really philosophical math, just started to become really far out there. But I've been taking chemistry because uh, of pre-med and this and that, and just because I was interested. And I thought, oh, that is, that's very hands-on, nice and smelly. Basically, it's a very sensory type thing, you know, visually. The hearing, everything is, is involved. And so luckily, they are very flexible with, with the requirements. And so I could bring all the math over into a chemistry degree. And so never really looked back. Fantastic. And then how did you get interested in the kind of chemistry that you actually do now? So I was lucky in the sense of the first person I worked for as, as an undergrad, uh, Andy Barron. So he was at Harvard, now he's at Rice. But he was a crazy assistant professor. And I say crazy because he really was energetic. He was lead singer in, in a band, uh, had done lights and backstage for a really famous British band when he was at Imperial College doing his PhD in London called Merlin. Anyway, so the guy really was nuts. He had a, he had a uh, rat tail braid in the back, I mean, which is very un-Harvard. And I thought that's an interesting person to work for. And then from there, I did a, a PhD at the, at the Louis Pasteur in France. Went to work for the first graduate student of, or not the first graduate student, but perhaps the most famous graduate student of Jeffrey Wilkinson. So he got a Nobel Prize in organometallic chemistry. He's also the, um, so my academic brother is Dick Schrock as well. So kind of this interesting organometallic group. And then I did a postdoc at the Scripps Research Institute and then moved to Purdue University where both my kids were born. Got early tenure there and then when Canada set up this what's called a National Institute for Nanotechnology, they called me and asked whether I'd be interested in going back and it seemed like a different opportunity. Could be closer to my family. My kids are really small and so agreed to do that. And how long have you been there then? So 14 years which I never, I, if anyone asked, where do you think you'll be when you're 45? <laughs> Alberta, that was never even on my radar, but. Yeah. Academia, you're so, generally people are so transient for so long. Yeah. Do undergrad and then mm -hmm. grad school and then postdoc and then something. And then, and then so to be anywhere yeah. for that long, I find feels odd, but it's. Well, I think it was that right now it's it's having the kids in school when they're teenagers, they don't really like to move. 
had several opportunities to move. My husband actually took early retirement. So we're, we're actually quite mobile, but it's the kids that are really pinning us here for now. But yeah. we'll see. Yeah. Thinking about the, the kinds of chemistry that you do, I think maybe what you're most famous for, at least outside of chemistry, is this nanotechnology application for solar energy. Is that, is that fair to say? That's something I'm really excited about. The only reason we started working on, on solar energy, materials for solar energy, back in 2006 is because the students were just banging on our door. Can I, who's, I don't want to work on oil sands. I don't want to work on fossil fuels. I, I really want to work on something renewable. The, the, the societal motivation was so strong mm-hmm. that we said, okay, how are we going to make this happen? So we're cobbling together little pots of money. The students would get maybe a graduate scholarship. And so then that enabled them to get to work on whatever they wanted. And so we just sort of pulled it all together, got a few initial papers, and then developed a, and I'm putting this in big quotes, credibility that allowed us to then apply for, for serious money. That And so we just never looked back, but it, it was the students that's great. So That's funding are. sources are a bit more hesitant to dive in, would you say, to, well, to something new like that? Well, they were in 2006. Yeah. So in 2006, it still was, I mean, a lot of people who are now very well known in the field had already started to work on this. And obviously, the longer you work in an area, the more you get to know it. That's a good thing. But in Canada in particular, a very resource-based economy, oil sands slash tar sands, that was where the money was because the industry pull is there. Mm -hmm. And so working on solar energy, you had to kind of be a little careful because you could get tagged as a tree hugger or, you know, whatever sort of bad stereotype in that regard. But we just didn't care because Mm -hmm. the students were there and that's what they wanted. And that's ultimately what we're supposed to do in a university is, is to respond to uh, you know, societal change and what the students want, because yeah. they're the ones who are going to quote unquote inherit the earth. Right. right. Mm-hmm. So, what makes nanotechnology useful for solar energy? What can you kind of lay the groundwork of? What is sort of we think of as kind of typical oh, ab- solar? Absolutely. So, nanoscience and nanotechnology—they've both had gone through the hype cycle, and everybody <laughs> was expecting nano to result in what they call the killer applications, the the new commercial products. But I've been arguing for a long time that that's not what nano does. Nano is not a branch of science per se. It's a set of enabling technologies, an enabling way of thinking. So instead of having the traditional silos of science, you've got the old medical field here, you've got the physics field here, and the biologists and the statisticians, and never shall they meet, (laughs) is that they're all converging on this length scale because that's all nanoscience is about. It's about thinking about things in the sub 100 nanometer length scale. And that's the common length scale of the molecular machinery of life, of how you get a solar panel to work. Is is It's all this common way of thinking. And so it's broken down the barriers of science and in particular for renewable energy, let's say solar applications, is that you have to have a material that absorbs light from the sun and then what does it do with that light? Well, it converts those photons, those particles of light, into electrons and holes. And then you have to pull those electrons and holes apart. And we're talking at the atomic level and then the level of uh, the length scale of molecular bonds. And then get them through this thick material to the respective electrodes where they can do work. And then it generates power. That's all nanoscale, all of it. So you have to think at that length scale in order to get this to work efficiently. Otherwise, they wander, it's kind of like toddlers, they just start doing their own thing and (laughs) do nothing productive. And if somehow the work kind of gets done, it's just sort of luck. 
if that if, if you're not right careful and, attention to yeah it. And, and certainly that was the case i mean silicon-based solar cells that's a, a really established technology now mm-hmm. and that was brought to commercialization not through a detailed understanding what was going on at the atomic level now i'm not saying this on the 70s the 80s there mm-hmm. certainly were theories and ideas absolutely and ex- some experimental work to back it up but electron microscopes were not common uh, a lot of the other peripheral techniques were very expensive. You can only find them in national labs. We're not within the reach of, of most scientists. And so now we can go in and understand how do these silicon solar cells that were developed without this detailed and intimate knowledge, how do they work? Well, how do they work so well? And then how can we apply those principles and the principles that nature uses for photosynthesis to new systems? How can we do completely different ways of capturing that solar energy and converting it? Yeah. That's great. Can you back up a little bit? You mentioned something about taking the photons and separating it into electrons and holes. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So sunlight shines and produces all these photons and they they hit a, let's just take a silicon-based solar cell. What happens? So something absorbs it. And so suddenly you've you've got absorption of energy. So already it's no longer a photon. And so you've got a material that has chemical bonds. Everything is chemistry, right? That's what we all say. <laughs> so you have these chemical bonds, and so you are, and these chemical bonds, what are they? Just just shared electrons. And so you're giving some of that energy to electrons. And so those electrons, as they move around, they suddenly have a bunch of energy because they've taken that energy from the sun. But left over, it's like musical chairs. You've got these empty chairs now. Once the electron is moving, it's got the positive charge space. Physicists call this a particle, and that's the whole. And so, but you got to get the electrons, like the plus minus on, on a battery. It's exactly the same thing. You have to get the plus to this side of your device and the minus to the other side of the device, get them separated. And if they decide, ooh, I actually just want to go and meet up with my, my partner again, then they annihilate each other. And that's a decrease of efficiency. So nature handles this really well in a photosynthetic center by having little steps up for the holes, down for the electrons to get them physically separated so they don't meet up and just annihilate each other. Right. So can we do the same thing, the same same way of thinking? How do you get them apart? Mm-hmm. And then use that yeah, to make electricity. That. Exactly. Cool. In your lab, uh, what are some exciting things that you're working on so at the moment? So a few things working on is uh, if you want to have, when you think about solar energy, when you think about renewable energy, and you think about how much energy that all of humanity uses over the face face of the globe. Basically, we're like a 16 terawatt light bulb, where a terawatt is 10 to the 10 to the 12. So I always remember mega giga tera peta exa. I always remember that by my God, the piano exploded. You know, high school teacher. <laughs> That's cute. So it's a lot of energy. So if you're going to have large scale applications, you have to think about Earth abundance of elements. You have to think about what elements are available and cheap, and if you go and mine them out, they're not going to also destroy the planet. What elements make sense? And so one thing we've been working on are are earth-abundant materials for rock materials, basically minerals. We call them rock stars in the community that are going to be able to do the job. And so one thing is iron pyrite, for instance, fool's gold. So it's clearly very abundant. It's got some amazing properties for, for solar energy, but... It also has a lot of problems related to surface chemistry. So materials like that. Another thing we're doing is is plastic solar cells. So these are called organic photovoltaics. Things that you could produce like newspapers, roll-to-roll printing, spray coating. Now these have been around for a while now, um, a couple of decades. People have now, uh, like Fred Krebs Group in Denmark, doing beautiful work making literally 100 meter long rolls of, of these organic solar cells. 
but they haven't been commercialized because they they degrade in the sun. It's very bad if your material degrades in the sun, if it's a solar panel. <laughs> um, so we're applying machine learning to actually Im- improve this quickly because normally the, the Edisonian empirical screening approach is you change one variable, test, change another variable, test. And so a machine learning approach is a design of experiments, it's called, allows you to change multiple variables simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Engineers often do this. So it's people who go work for General Electric have to take a course in what's called design of experiments. And so by applying large data sets, which we now have because we've been working on these OPVs, organic photovoltaics, for over a decade, is that we now have a machine learning approach that will tell us what variables are, are valuable to change um, and even new variables that we didn't even know were important. And so it allows us to optimize much faster and so maybe take this promising technology and, and optimize a lot faster than, than what people have been doing before. That's very cool. Yeah, it's so kind of fun. It sounds like this is a, an example of where your math background probably comes in handy. Well, luckily, I don't really, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. Oh, my goodness. And that certainly applies to math. It's so bad. Uh, but I have some engineering physicists in the group who are very good at this. Gotcha. Yes. So yeah, I can understand once they've explained it, but yeah, there's not a lot of me leading this. It's the I was just talking to someone about having to like take the GRE and there's you know oh, trigonometry that you goodness. haven't done since seventh grade like, or something. I've been seeing the sine theta y over r. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I was like, oh, I'd be so slow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's wonderful. Thank you. And it sounds like there's sort of multiple dimensions of sustainability that come Absolutely. in with your work. Absolutely. Like well, the technology, I mean, the components, the process, the outcome, obviously, the goal is sustainability. So, And and energy storage is a big one. So that's why we've gotten into sodium ion batteries. So lithium is, clearly, you're probably carrying several lithium ion. But in fact, I can see two on the table right now, lithium. In fact, three yes. lithium ion batteries sitting right there. Um, sodium is a much more democratic element because everyone has access to sodium, hmm. whereas lithium comes mostly from the lithium triangle. And if we're going to talk about massive expansion, Internet of Things, where's the energy going to come from? Where's the lithium going to come from that's going to power a lot of these things? They're, when you look at some of the worst case scenarios, there's not enough lithium on the face of the planet, and then you'd have to mine everything. It would just be a mess. Hmm. So sodium ion batteries, that's, so that's what one thing we're working on is using seawater kind of thing. That's cool. So mm. what are some of the challenges there? Why, why isn't everybody using sodium already? Well, so lithium works so well. It's a very small little element. It doesn't disrupt materials that quickly. You can get a lot of lithium ions because it is so, so small in and out of, for instance, a graphite-based anode. Sodium is bigger. It's bulkier. It's slower. It's seen much less attention. And so the question is, what materials will work with sodium? A lot of the same materials of lithium work with sodium, just sodium is a lot slower. And it hasn't seen the massive commercialization and hence research that, that lithium has. Lithium has been commercialized by Sony since 1991. So how many hundreds of millions of years of engineer time have been spent on lithium? Sodium is so little. Yeah, so your group is starting Yeah, to... I mean, and we and other people around the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lots Wonderful. of people are, yeah. So this kind of fun partnership from community that's around the world and particularly in in Asia, China. I mean, it's it's amazing. Very cool. So in the last couple of minutes that we have, I'm curious, you mentioned that you have a couple of kids. Yes. Do you mind talking at all about your experience as a scientist and a person with a family and like, we, I don't know, we like to yeah. kind of humanize scientists. Oh, absolutely. As my daughter's first year a freshman at biochemistry at the University of British Columbia. And, well, she just finished her first year and son is in grade 10. He loves basketball. Mm-hmm. Miriam is pole vaulter and hiker. I was the first 
professor at Purdue to be pregnant on the job. Um, wow. I wasn't the first parent or, or you know, female parent, because mm-hmm. you know, lots of parents, men and women, of course, and it's, it's a lot of work for both. But uh, so it was the first time that they had to deal with, with a pregnant faculty member in the Department of Chemistry, and it's a very large department, a very old department. So I didn't know what to do. And I thought, oh, well, you know, six weeks, I'll be involved, you know, daycare, blah, blah. No, I, I just said, as soon as this baby is born, you look at this baby, it's just nature takes over. And so I brought her with me to work every day for eight months and mm-hmm. then and then got some part-time help at home. But I would just even found that difficult. So basically any time she slept and she was not a sleeper, I would just work. And so I just didn't sleep. But you have a group that depends on you. Those are the days where there really wasn't. There was no maternity leave at Purdue. It was sick leave. I think I had accumulated a month and a half or something like that. And so luckily academia actually is flexible in that way as long as you don't care what anybody thinks. Just say, this is what I'm going to do. This is my baby. And you realize that the rest of the world, they're putting their babies on their backs in the front. And it went through three baby carriers and... Took that both kids have been to conferences around the world because they're so used to science. I mean, you talk mm-hmm. about privilege is that they have this huge academic privilege because they've been to conferences, they know a lot of famous people, and they don't realize what a privilege that is. I mean, I tell them, do you realize how privileged <laughs> lucky you guys are? You've traveled everywhere. They say, have we been to here? Yes, you have. Remember that trip? So, so I've taken them everywhere. Mm-hmm. ACS meetings, MRS meetings, Gordon conferences, meetings in China, meetings in Korea. Just pff, they've been over Europe, all over the U.S. and Canada. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so it sounds like overall a positive experience for you. Yeah. There, do you feel like as time has gone by, things have have evolved? I mean, I feel like pop, the population is shifting a little bit. As it as certainly faculty. seems to be. I, I do see that some of the same problems that I face. For instance, how do you manage a Gordon conference? Uh, a Gordon conference is where you're going to be spending the old the idea was is that you would spend five or six days kind of cloistered with your colleagues and you'd have a lot of free time but when your kids are small that's a lot of time um, to leave them and particularly they would often be in remote locations difficult to get to so it's a day of travel on either end so suddenly it turns into say instead of six days it becomes eight days Mm -hmm. and so I mean I brought kids and Luckily, recruited my mother, you know, frequent flyer miles, just mm-hmm. spend them all on. But I see that those problems are still there. And mm-hmm. so it's yeah, it's, and it's just physically so exhausting, <laughs> so tiring. Yeah. But, you know, it just... It's still work to be done. As my mother said, the best advice, and it still is the best advice, just day by day. You look out and you say, oh, my God, how am I going to survive all these trips? And, all this? and then just one day at a time, just mm-hmm. just in enjoy that one day at a time mm-hmm. as hard as that is sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And that was the best advice I ever had. So one day at a time. Are you on social media? Should we? Oh, uh, yes. Twitter. To- absolutely. Mm-hmm. At Jay Buriak. So then the final thing, is there anything else that uh, that you're working on or that you're excited about that we should share with our listeners? No, but I think that uh, the, the most important thing is, and this sounds really corny, but follow your heart, follow your gut. Mm-hmm. And even if the funding isn't there, oftentimes you are sensing what's happening before the funding agency. I mean, imagine how long it takes a funding agency to respond. Just do it. Just get out there and do it. If your gut is saying, I need to do this, I need to do this, and I'm really interested in this, do it. 
don't always just follow what the funding agency says because you could then be the first in that area and then the funding agency calls you and says, hey, how do we fund this? Like, well, you know. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. yeah. Very important. All right. Well, thank Thanks, you so much Miriam. for talking with us. I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you very much. And that's it for this episode of the Sustainable Nano Podcast. Thanks for listening. And thank you so much to Dr. Buryak for talking with us. And also thank you to the Center for Sustainable Polymers and the Covestro Lectureship for hosting her visit to the University of Minnesota. This podcast is produced by the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which is funded by the National Science Foundation. Our usual disclaimer, though, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the National Science Foundation. The producer is me, Miriam Krauss. This episode was edited by Alicia McGeechee, and our music is by PC3. Want more Sustainable Nano? You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or listen to any of our episodes at podcast.sustainable-nano.com. We also have a blog with over 250 posts that are mostly written by students in the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, and you can find that at sustainable-nano.com. And you can always reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook, or now at Instagram at Sustainable Nano, all one word. We'd love to hear from you. We've got a great set of episodes lined up for you this season, so stay tuned for the next one coming out in just a couple of weeks. Oh, and one more thing. To reward those of you who listen all the way to the end of the episode, I feel like Sustainable Nano needs some kind of sign-off tagline, but I don't know what it should be. The West Wing Weekly has What's Next, and Reading Rainbow has See You Next Time, so how should we sign off Sustainable Nano? Send in your ideas and we'll share them on a future episode. Okay, thanks for listening. <laughs>